Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sam. I'm Zach, and we are thrilled to have Professor Height joining us today. Jonathan Height is a social psychologist currently teaching at NYU's Stern School of Business. His academic publications and education are exceptional, having earned his BA from Yale and his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. He studies civility in American politics, business ethics, and emotional psychology. His most recent book, The Righteous Mind, examined how to learn and talk to people with whom you disagree. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Professor Haidt. Um, one of the questions we like to ask our guests is to talk about an inflection point, um, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their careers or personal lives. Um, can you share such a moment with us? Oh boy, there's so many of them. Um, I started off thinking I was gonna be an astronaut, then a doctor, then a computer programmer, um, uh, and then I had no idea what to do with my life when I was a computer programmer because I found <laughs> it kind of boring. And I decided to apply to grad school and I went to Penn uh, in cognitive psychology. And based on a chance conversation with a professor there, I ended up switching my research to moral psychology, which is what I've done for the rest of my life. So just chance meetings, uh, chance people can change the course of everything. Um, probably the biggest one for my intellectual li life, the way I ended up where I am now, which is this strange place that I'm not on either team. I'm not a partisan. Uh, I'm not part of this gigantic war raging all around us. Um, the turning point there happened to me in India when I was on a postdoc. I was working with a brilliant anthropologist named Richard Schwader at the University of Chicago, who taught me to see that every culture is expert in some aspects of human experience and is less developed in others. And I was a progressive, atheist, um, you know, East Coast, liberal, Jewish guy spending three months in India and trying to understand this sex-segregated, hierarchical, traditional culture. Um, and this was 1993, and I really did my best, and people were nice to me, and I, I, I kind of tried to get inside their heads and understand what virtues they were pursuing. And the amazing thing is that when I got back to America, for the first time in my life, I could at least begin to understand the religious right. At the time, you know, in the 1980s and 90s, it was the time of the moral majority and the cultural war was really just heating up strongly. Um, and that experience of being exposed to people who saw the world so differently from me, who I did not hate, allowed me to, for the first time, understand people that I did hate. So what is it like to be not on a team, um, especially right now when we think that our politics, whether or not they actually are, when we think our politics are quite divided? Um, what is, how do you, do you, are you just agnostic about politics? Do you think that you don't know much and that's why you're not on a team? How do you um, think about your own political views? Well, um, I still, I'm not indifferent about our current politics. Um, I have only voted for Democrats in my whole life. Um, I have now learned a lot from conservative intellectuals, but I think the Republican Party has run off the rails in a lot of ways. So I'm not indifferent. I'm also um, extremely interested, and as you know, we'll talk. Uh, I'll talk about my talk tonight. Uh, I think some degree of political civility is essential, especially in our multi-ethnic democracy. Um, and I think that our our current president um, has uh, 
let's just say, change the norms to put it as mildly as I can. So it's not that I'm indifferent, but there's an enormous difference between having your personal attitudes and being active on a team. And my own view as a social scientist is that all of us scientists, all of us scholars, have what you might call a fiduciary duty to the truth. We must never betray the truth. Our work must be completely committed to finding the truth and saying what is true. But if you're on a team and your team is at war, uh, who I just read this quote, who was it, um, who said the first thing a man will do for his ideal is lie for it. Was that Schumpeter, I think. I might have gotten the quote wrong. But the point is, when we're on a team and our team is fighting, we betray the truth because that's not our goal. Our goal is victory. So I do think, and as I'll mention in my talk tonight, I think that political activity, being on a team, changes your thinking and takes us away. It makes us violate our fiduciary duty to the truth. So your answer there just makes me think about, in a lot of your talks and discussions, you mentioned tribal conflict. Um, and I'm just curious whether, when you say tribal conflict, is it an innate thing within um, humans, or is it kind of a product of the, the environment they're in? Or? Yeah, so I, I study evolutionary psychology, positive psychology, cultural psychology. I, I try to use a lot of different branches of psychology in the social sciences. And evolution is extraordinarily illuminating. You see all these human potentials. But the thing that people often don't get about evolution is they think if something is innate, or something has evolved, then they think that means it's hardwired and always there. And that's just not true at all. Humans are a really flexible species. So tribalism is part of our innate endowment. We love it. It's fun. We invent get ways to use it when we can. That's what fraternities are all about. And if you look at fraternity initiations, they are completely bizarre until you realize that they're actually similar to initiations in many traditional societies. Um, it comes out of the mind. Not, it's not a pure cultural invention. So tribalism is, is part of our basic psychology, but we can turn it up or down. Um, people in real tribes are actually really good at trading, at forming alliances. Um, they're not always in tribal warfare mode. They're only sometimes in that mode, and we are too. So this is my big concern now about what's happening to us. And as I'll show, I'll show some of the, the uh, research on polarization, the level of hatred that we now have for people in the, on, on the other side and their candidates and their party um, is beyond anything we've seen since the post-Civil War era. And it warps us. It makes us so desperate to believe the worst thing anyone can tell us about the other side. And that's why we're so easy to exploit by Russian trolls. The big study came out in Science a couple weeks ago. It's not the bots, it's us. We hate each other so much that we forward false information. If you take the bots out of the equation, these researchers at MIT found, it doesn't change the result. We're doing this to ourselves. That's pretty depressing. Damning, I think, is the word. How do you overcome that? And I want to talk, maybe you could talk about one of your projects, which is the Asteroid Club. Um, how does that relate to the topic of incivility? And then... And, and then we can ask more questions from them. So as for how you overcome it, um, as a psychologist, I am not a fan of therapy or even education. What I mean is we're not going to overcome this you know, by just teaching people to be nice. Um, we are extraordinarily influenced by other people uh, and by the norms and culture around us. So we've got to change some system settings. We've got to change some parameters. 
So for one thing, uh, Facebook, Google, um, YouTube, these sites, there's some fairly simple tweaks. These businesses are not going to go away. They do lots of useful things. But there are some there are a number of things they can do that will make them amplify our, our problems less. So we have to change social media is a big part of it. Um, but this was happening before social media. Um, we have a two-party system. Our two, you know, if you think about our, our tendency to divide up into us and them, the worst possible number of parties to have in a country is two. Um, so parliamentary systems, uh, I guess they have in Canada and especially Europe, are much better adapted to this kind of conflict. Our, our system is not. Um, at very least, we need to get Congress working. Congress is completely broken. People have been observing it, have been saying this for 10 or 15 years, but it's much worse now. Uh, so we need to have a lot of reform to Congress and the way we do elections. There's all sorts of things we can do um, that will make people feel less that it's a life and death struggle to win, to dominate, uh, to shut the other party out. So there are many system reforms. Um, one thing we're trying to do, so at Heterodox Academy, a, a group that I co-founded uh, with John Shields here at CMC, was one of the first members. Um, what we're trying to do is get the academy working better. America and all the Western democracies, many of the Western democracies, face uh, what could be an existential crisis. I, mean, I don't want to be too alarmist. Odds are we'll make it through this. But there are risks of collapse and disaster that were just not credible four years ago. And now some political scientists say they are credible. So we've got to get the universities working really, really well to understand what's happening to us, to understand issues of immigration, race, politics. And these things are hard for us to talk about, hard for us to study. So at Heterodox Academy, we're, we're hoping to, um, to improve the nature of especially the social sciences so that we can do better and more open research. Um, there's a that's the beginning of an answer, but there's a lot more to say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, just last year, there were um, a couple of um, notable speakers who um, came to campuses, such as Heather McDonald, who came here to Claremont McKenna, and Charles Murray, who went to Middlebury. And um, student protests um, kind of disrupted their um, the planned uh, talks they were going to give. Um, I was curious, what do you think are driving these um, protests on specifically college campuses? Uh, so the book that um, I'm just finishing up now with Greg Lukianoff is called The Coddling of the American Mind, which is a title we didn't pick and we're not that happy with. But the subtitle is exactly what the book is about. The subtitle is um, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. And in the book, we go through five different causal threads. There's no simple answer to your question. Uh, a couple, one of them is the massive polarization that we spoke about, which happened at the same time that the universities purified. That is, they used to lean left um, all the way up until the 1990s, and now they are so far left that they're essentially um, they're, they're institutions with a partisan nature to them. And at least that's the way it seems to outsiders, and there's some truth to that. Um, so that's one causal thread. Th this would not be happening if we were not, if we didn't hate the other side so much and if we weren't so uniform. In fact, the protests pretty much only happen at universities that lack viewpoint diversity, that, that have basically one party culture. Um, and that's why they're almost all in the, you know, the New England and the West Coast is where most, what most of them are. Um, so that's one thread. Another thread is that, um, um, rates of mental illness are going way, way up. The level of anxiety and depression 
is so much higher now than it was even five years ago. Uh, and so um, students, many students are more fragile. I'm not saying these are necessarily the ones that are protesting. Uh, there are many different threads for many different students. But the idea, the idea that if Charles Murray were to speak, some students would be harmed, they would be hurt, they would be in danger. This is almost unthinkable seven, five, five years ago, but it's commonplace now on many campuses. So there's a new idea that students are fragile, and even if you know I'm not fragile, but I'm doing this to protect everyone else. This is new, and it leads to it leads to a kind of a I mean the what should I call it rudeness gall the idea of saying of saying I will decide what you get to listen to I know best I. Um, and I haven't even read his work. I don't actually know what this person said, but I've heard some things, and that makes this person unacceptable. Um, this is almost the definition of illiberalism. The whole idea of the liberal tradition, as John Stuart Mill put it, is to allow, allow for experiments in living. We have pluralism. We have diversity. We need to learn ways to live together. And that means that what, whenever we want to shut someone down or tell them what to do, we have to resist and institutions have to encourage such resistance. There are legitimate grievances. Um, this is of course tied up with the Black Lives Matter movement and all the horrible videos we all saw of black men being murdered. So I, I'm not saying the, the, the protesters, clearly they do have grievances, there are concerns, um, but the idea of expressing them by regulating what others get to see and hear and sometimes using real physical intimidation as happened here, there wasn't violence as far as I know, but the students were physically intimidated from attending the talk. So I think leadership is needed uh, um, and um, norms are needed. Um, and I'm hopeful that this will be a passing phase. I wanna ask you more about your background, um, especially in the field of psychology. Um, how did you how did you come to apply, like why, why was it interesting to you to apply the psychology you were studying specifically to politics? Um, or are we just, getting a small segment of your research. Mm -hmm. um, was it the time in India where you thought that you were in a totally different cultural situation? Yeah. Well, that opened my mind, and that allowed me for the first time to understand conservatives. Um, but at the time, I was still very much a partisan Democrat. And when George W. Bush won in 2000, um, I was horrified. I thought Al Gore should have won in a landslide. And I, and I thought, oh, the Democrats don't know how to talk about morality. But I do. I've been studying it. So I, I can help. I can help. Um, but I was still studying just how nations vary, how cultures vary um, on politics. I wasn't really on, on morality. I wasn't looking at politics yet. And then when George Bush won again, I couldn't stand it. And so I started writing memos. Um, I, I switched my research over from looking at cross-cultural differences to looking at cross-political differences. I did that in December of 2004, specifically to help the Democrats. Um, I wanted my research to help the left win. And so I committed to really understanding conservatives and reading a lot more. I subscribed to National Review. I started watching um, Glenn Beck and other shows on TV. Uh, and what I found as I learned more and more was that I actually was learning things like you know, wow, I never thought about that point about the family or about regulation. Um, now, each side has its problems. Each side is ignorant. Each side is corrupted, uh, be it by money or by, uh, by, by, by certain moral commitments that affect their thinking. 
so it's not I'm not saying in any way that the right is correct. What I'm saying is if all you do is listen to people on your side, I pretty much can guarantee that you cannot figure out any complex problem and you shouldn't be entrusted to do so. And so over time I began to realize, oh my god, you know, as a social scientist, I realized we can't figure, you know, why are we not made we made some progress on poverty especially in the early days. But why do we have all these insoluble problems? Why decade after decade do we did not do we fail to solve a lot of problems? And I came to realize we really, really need critique, criticism, viewpoint diversity. As individuals, we're not that smart. But if you put us together so that we challenge each other's confirmation bias, then the assemblage is brilliant. And that's what a university is supposed to do. But as we gradually lost our viewpoint diversity, between the late 90s and around 2010, in that 15-year period, as we lost most of the viewpoint diversity that we had, I think it has impacted some of our research. So that's how I ended up getting into this. It was a very partisan motive, but it ended up, I just ended up stepping out and saying, okay, I'm not, I, I, you know, I'm trying to understand this. I don't want to be on either team. So you took a very active approach when you were unhappy with the um, election results in 2000. Mm -hmm. Do you have any suggestions for um, students who are unhappy with the political climate they're in and what mm -hmm. they can do to kind of um, make changes in that area? Yes. Commit yourself to truth. Reality is incredibly complicated. Solutions are easy and obvious until they're implemented, at which point most of them fail to work. So, uh, of course, it's, it's admirable to be passionate as opposed to apathetic. Um, but I would urge students to learn as much as they can about the topic they want to change. If you simply are swept along by group passions and you throw your force, your, you throw your efforts into getting some change made because that's what people are advocating for, there's a very good chance that the program you're advocating for is not going to work and it might even make things worse. We are in an era of such intense polarization, such an overdose of outrage, that every time you express outrage, every time you pass on some outrageous post, some outrageous uh, news story, you're adding to the pollution that's suffocating us all. So I'm not saying don't be outraged. There are things to be outraged by. But if everybody is turned up to 10, it's a disaster and our country is going to fail. I want to push back maybe a little bit. Um, what do you say to those students who, um, I mean, so at CMC there was a protest largely from students from other colleges at CMC against Heather McDonald, and mm -hmm. almost probably all of them thought they they were right that this was something that was genuinely to be outraged from. Oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry, explain that to me. What was um, the protest against Heather McDonald where they blocked her? Right, but I'm sorry. What you mean? So what was so the students were right to be outraged by her talk? No, no, no. My, so my question is, um, so for those students, um, they almost certainly felt that they were right. That they this, felt, yes, they felt they were right. So should are you recommending that they, the presumption should be one of skepticism, that um, maybe they should um, presume that they're wrong or that they should look for ways in which they're wrong? or is And is that sort of a, um, a way of learning differently? Um, I guess I'm wondering how to how to talk to people, how to convince people that they should have that sort of um, epistemological humility? Uh, well, certainly religious traditions, wisdom traditions, basic psychology um, tell us that we tend to be self-righteous hypocrites. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're all wrong about a lot of things. 
Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is there are different tactics appropriate for different venues. Um, in warfare, it's appropriate to actually kill people. Um, in electoral politics, it's a zero-sum game. At a certain point, um, pushing hard, even using dirty tactics, can even be defended. A university is a different sort of place, or at least it's supposed to be. And that is in part up to leadership to make it clear that there are norms for using pressure and even intimidation sometimes in politics, um, but a university needs to be a different sort of place. And so uh, I think Claremont McKenna is the only place in the country I know of that has actually imposed some penalty on a few of the people who shouted her down and, sh and shut, you know, shut down the talk. Um, at Middlebury, they, they did impose a little, but it was very symbolic. Uh, so in general, university leaders have not set norms. They have not said that this is a very serious matter to, to prevent others from going to a talk. Um, uh, so, um, so, well, yeah, I, I think it's um, uh, the norms on campus should be those that are conducive to us learning together. Sometimes we're going to think that other people are so wrong that it, it somehow is going to have bad effects. But you know what? We have to, that's part of living together with diversity, is we, we have to be a lot more reticent about imposing our ideas on others. So, um, the last question uh, we ask all of our guests um, is what is your personal definition of success, and how would you help students to define success for themselves? Oh, let's see. Success. Um, well, I, I teach a course in positive psychology. And um, in my own book on positive psych, my first book was called The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. And I didn't know what, um, what, what that really meant. In fact, the publishers made up that title. I had no idea what it was until I finished the book. Uh, but by the end of the book, the definition that I came to from reviewing the research is that um, happiness um, doesn't come from getting what you want. It doesn't come from within entirely. It, it comes from between. That is, it comes from getting the right relationship between yourself and others, yourself and your work, and yourself and something larger than yourself. And so a person who has managed to achieve that state of betweenness, that you have good relationships, you have a family and friends, and you're embedded in networks of people that you like and respect. You have some work that contributes some value to others. Um, you have something, and you know. It, it, and I'm not saying, oh, it has to be you know social work or activism. Um, a business is successful to the extent that it, it is producing something that people want, and it's it's ultimately business that has raised the the wealth of the world. So there are many many careers that that are producing value for others. Um, and finally, not everybody needs to be a part of something larger than themselves. But there's a kind of, uh, I think for the sort of the subculture that many of you students at CMC, many, uh, uh, many of us in the universities are, are in, where we have notions of self-actualization and higher purpose, um, I think having the sense that, that your time on earth has meant something, that you, you have been a part of some project, a part of something great. Um, so if you, my definition of a successful life would be one in which you're able to get those, those three relationships pretty well in order. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. 
Um, thank you so much, though, Professor Haidt, for joining us. And to all of our listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.